you're listening to Live with Lija. I'm your host, Lija, duh. I'm a lawyer and YouTuber, and I keep you up to date with a zero BS take on the news every Thursday morning at 10.30 a.m. Central, live on YouTube. And then I post that audio here for you as a podcast so you can listen on the go, you busy fucking bee. Enjoy. Good morning. Hello. How y'all doing? Happy Thursday. Welcome. Oh, I see the chat is alive and well. Hi. Hello. Thank you. It's true. In case you don't follow me on the Instagrams, I got engaged over the weekend. Ooh. Um, it was a surprise. Not like a, oh my God, I can't, like I hadn't even thought of this. Like I thought of it. We it, it had been talked about, but it was a surprise, the timing, and it was so lovely. It was just a lovely weekend. So thank you for your congratulations, and thank you for being here uh, for this live stream. Hi. All right. Um, I got, we got a lot to talk about, so we're going to start with racist station because it just came down just now that the Supreme Court has pretty much effectively gutted affirmative action in college admissions. Are we surprised? I guess not. We had a positive ruling a couple days ago on the like independent legislature theory that was like shouldn't have even ever been in- entertained by the Supreme Court, frankly, but that like basically said that state legislatures could do anything with impunity and the Supreme Court was like, nah. And that was kind of a surprise based on how partisan <laughs> uh, the Supreme Court has been recently. Um, but uh, they're back on their bullshit today. Back on their bullshit today. Let's see. Is this? Nope. Okay. So Supreme Court guts affirmative action in college admissions says colleges and universities can no longer take race into consideration as a specific basis for granting admission, a landmark decision that overturns longstanding precedent that has benefited black and Latino students in higher education. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the opinion for the conservative majority, which is so fucked that we have a, a, a Supreme Court where we can say conservative majority because we so obviously know the political leanings of these justices and what they're trying to do. Saying that the Harvard and University of North Carolina admissions programs violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment because they failed to offer measurable objectives to justify the use of race. He said the programs involved racial stereotyping and had no specific end point. Basically, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment guarantees equal protection under the Constitution um, for all people. Um, And if you are going to do something that is race specific, like considering race in, in a, in a college admissions, um, it needs to be really, really, it has to, it has to pass a really high bar of called strict scrutiny. So like the reason for why they are, using race as a determination has to pass this bar. It has to be for a very measurable, specific, justifiable purpose, basically. And even though the court in the past has said, yes, race-based admissions do 
cross that threshold. They do meet that scrutiny. They are for a measurable and reasonable objective. Um, though in the past, this, the court has ruled against Harvard in affirmative action in the past saying that quotas where like 20% of our class needs to be African-American, for example, that's not cool because it's not, it's just creating a specific, a, a blanket percentage without actually taking the individual into consideration. And that wasn't cool according to the Supreme Court. But other than that, it's upheld affirmative action as justifiable with with measurable objectives. But now they're saying no, at least not Harvard or the University of Carolina. What they're doing isn't. And what they're doing is like pretty standard. So that's why it applies to everyone now. Um, the majority opinion claims that the court was not expressly overturning prior cases authorizing race-based affirmative action and suggested that how race has affected an applicant's life can still be part of how their application is considered. But even if the court did not formally end race-based affirmative action in higher education, its analysis will make it practically impossible for colleges and universities to take race into account, which is something the three Democratic uh, justices stressed in their dissent. So this is this is how it was divided: conservatives, liberals. Clarence Thomas, of course, citing the cognitive dissonance. While I'm painfully aware of this, Thomas Thomas wrote: "While I'm painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles." so clearly enunciated in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States that all men are created equal, are equal citizens, and must be treated equally before the law. I don't know how he holds out endearing hope, considering never once in our history have we really done that very well. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, joined by Justice Elena Kagan and Kataji Brown-Jackson, issued a very um, fiery dissent saying the opinion rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. The result of today's decision is that a person's skin color may play a role in assessing individualized suspicion, but not it cannot play a role in assessing that person's individualized contributions to a diverse learning environment. That indefensible reading of the Constitution is not grounded in law and subverts the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection. Um, and the case, this case is interesting. So they were two separate cases, one against Harvard, one against the University of North Carolina that were combined in front of the Supreme Court because they were arguing the same things. They argued that their programs violated equal protection principles, um, dashed the promise of a colorblind society, fuck off, and discriminated against Asian Americans. They asked the court to overturn precedent and insist that higher education should explore and further develop race-neutral alternatives to achieve diversity. Um, let's see. The conservative group Students for Fair Admissions was behind both challenges. I believe that Students for Fair Admissions was also the conservative group that was behind. Do you remember that redheaded white lady who sued the University of Texas at Austin for like not giving her a seat, claiming that like a black person took it who wasn't as qualified as she was? And then we all made fun of her for it. They were behind that one, too. She lost in that Supreme Court. But I bet if she went before this Supreme Court, things would be different. So that, that group argued that the UNC and Harvard policies violated Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that prohibits schools receiving federal funds from discriminating based on race as well. The lawyers also argued that the UNC violated uh, 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection under the law, which covers state universities. Lower U.S. courts had ruled in favor of the schools, finding that the programs used race in a sufficiently limited way to fulfill a compelling interest in diversity. And that's that 
standard, that strict scrutiny standard, it, the way that they're using race is sufficiently limited and fulfilling a compelling interest in diversity. Therefore, it is justified, according to all Supreme Court precedent and the lower courts. But now, fuck it, no longer. Harvard's program is like that of University of North Carolina, but the challenge focused particularly on the treatment of Asian American students. And this was like, this was some mental fuckery that they played because they were like, no, no, it's not a white person saying that it's reverse racism. We're saying that it's it's discriminating against Asian American students and to charge that the school intentionally discriminates against them by setting higher standards for their admission. While Harvard is a private university, it's still subject to Title VI because it receives public funds. Um, its freshman class, 2019, had 1,600 students out of 35,000 applicants. Of the 35,000, 2,700 had purple, perfect verbal SAT scores. 3,400 had perfect math SAT scores and more than 8,000 had perfect grade point averages. After a 15-day bench trial that featured 30 witnesses, the district court ruled in favor of Harvard, finding that the school did not discriminate against Asian Americans in violation of Title VI. I was actually an intern at the United States Attorney's Office in Boston when this was happening. So I got to like see the opening arguments for this case at the district court level. Um, I wasn't in the room, unfortunately, because it was such a huge case that they had overflow rooms because the courtroom itself was filled. But it was very cool to see. And like, I mean, cool. It was a little boring. They used a lot of stats. They like really, really got into the nitty gritty of like, here is our application process. And this is why this is so such a huge case because people are like, oh my God, they're going to like pull back the curtain on like how Harvard reviews its applications. And basically the argument was that like Asian Americans weren't given the same amount of deference as other minorities in affirmative action. Um, and they, they were actually held to a higher standard. I don't remember the details in the data, but it was cool to see the opening arguments. And then the first circuit court of appeals affirmed that district court holding saying that it did not clearly err in finding that Harvard did not intentionally discriminate against Asian Americans. So district court was like, nah, first, uh, first circuit was like, yeah, they were right. And then the Supreme court was like, nah, nah. Solicitor general Elizabeth Preloger supported both Harvard and the university of North Carolina arguing or urging the justices to reject the invitation to ignore court precedent stemming from the court's 1978 decision in regents of the university of California v. Baki where Justice Lewis F. Powell Jr. recognized that the nation's future depends upon leaders trained through wide exposure to the ideas and mores of students as diverse as this nation of many peoples. And I think this is something that like, you can see both sides, but then when you start thinking about it critically, it makes no, like affirmative action makes sense, you know? Like I get people being like, oh my gosh, like if they are discriminating against Asian Americans, like that's bad, right? But the lower court, the lower court, which is the one that got presented all this evidence, as a reminder, the way that our courts work, the district court, they get all the details, they get the witnesses, they get the testimony, they get the evidence. They're the ones that review all that detail and make a determination. The appellate court and the Supreme Court, they don't look at those details usually unless there's like a specific circumstance. But for the most part, they just look to make sure that the court below them didn't make an error, like a legal error in judgment. So, so the first, the, the lowest court makes findings of fact. The upper courts just make sure that the law was applied properly to the facts as they were. And so the Supreme Court's saying, we don't, like the facts that they saw, fine, but the law that was applied was wrong. 
Yeah, and that's the thing. A few, affirmative action is confusing. I can't tell if it's good or bad. I'm on the side of affirmative action because it it counteracts the inherent biases that people who live in this society have. It also takes into consideration the fact that an African-American student who is who is otherwise qualified. And the, the thing is, is like Harvard wasn't looking at an application and being like, all right, are they white or black? Great. Now let's assess. No, they were looking at the applications on a race blind basis and then using race as a, a tipping point if they had two students who were exactly equal, exactly qualified, like, you know, it, it was a factor, but it was not an outcome determinative factor. There were a number of tipping points where I can't remember exactly what they call them, but tipping points that they would use to determine otherwise equal on paper students. Um, so it's not like they're saying like, okay, we're going to only look at black students applications or something, but it also, it takes into consideration the fact that a black student with those SAT scores we were talking about and those grades had to overcome a fuck ton more than a white student with those same exact grades. Cause like I had, I was not good enough to have gotten into Harvard, but I had a near perfect GPA in high school. I didn't have to deal with microaggressions in the classroom. I didn't have to deal with overt racism on the streets. I didn't have to deal with fearing for my life if I ran in into a police officer. You know, like that type of existing in a world with that type of discrimination and oppression takes a lot of mental, it takes a lot of your mental stamina to, to exist in that world in a way that white students, they don't have to, they don't have to waste their time and energy on that. And so affirmative action takes that piece into consideration, you know? So for me, I'm, I'm pro. But I guess it doesn't matter anymore because it won't exist. So luckily I think that Gen Z and probably Gen Alpha as well, which is the generation below Gen Z, I think they're starting to realize how much of a bullshit lie <laughs> higher education is. Um, don't go to college if you don't want to, or if you're not sure, take some time to think about it. Get a degree in like plumbing, something you can work with your hands, something that you could build a business around, something that's a tangible skill that you can monetize. <sighs> what did I learn in undergrad? Jack Dudley squat, I can write an essay. And luckily, I mean, now that's translating well, because I have a YouTube channel where I do video essays. So like, thanks, I guess. But like, when I when I was done with that degree, at, as 20 as a 22 year old, I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm gonna do with a poli sci degree. So uh, not that this is okay, you know, but like, I hope that fewer people go to college, honestly get training, read, read, be a critical thinker, but that doesn't require a four-year undergraduate degree. All right. Great. Okay. <sighs> Let me see. Where are we going next? Oh, uh, I don't really have a headline for this. Okay. Biden. This is less less exciting now in, in, in hindsight. But Biden has been going on tour, kind of touting the economic progress that we've seen under his administration. Flanked by blue signs with the word Bidenomics. 
Mr. Biden delivered what AIDS called a cornerstone speech of his presidency. In it, he hailed the impact of his economic agenda as the 2024 campaign cycle heats up, saying the trickle-down approach failed the middle class. He told an audience of about 200 supporters in Chicago referring to economic policies favoring lower taxation for the wealthy that were popularized by Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. It failed America. It blew up the deficit. It increased in inequity, and it weakened our infrastructure. It stripped the dignity, pride, and hope out of communities one after another. Has he been watching my YouTube channel? Because I definitely just made a video about this. Um, so he, he's pointing out, um, you know, his economic policy, revitalizing manufacturing. He's said investments in rebuilding crumbling infrastructure have begun to pave the way for growth. And he insisted that spending billions of dollars on programs like student debt relief will let more people find their way to a comfortable middle class life. He urged union leaders and perhaps a reminder for himself that you've got to brag a little bit more about what you do. And the reason why I'm highlighting this story is not because this speech was like particularly moving, but just because I have heard and I do think it is important for Democrats to be doing things like this, to be because when bills get passed, it's very hard for your average American to like connect the dots between how this bill is, is going to benefit them specifically. Um, and so... I think it's good for the Democrats to point out like, hey, we passed this bill and here's the tangible benefit to your life because of this bill that we passed. You have to connect the dots for people because even if their lives get better or if their lives get worse, it's very, very easy for the other for the other side to say like everything that's happening is due to the current president, even though we all know it takes time for these things to move through. And like something that's happening right now very well could be the product of the previous administration. But it's very easy for people. And you hear that in like alt-right TikToks and stuff. Everyone's like, Biden's ruining the economy. Look at it. We're, we're, in, we're in practically a recession. Everyone's, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's very easy for them to do that. So it's very important for the other side to then point to like, no, 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 we passed this thing. And here's the tangible benefit that you are currently seeing in your life. And so I think what he's doing is good, not because I'm a huge stan of Biden, but because I'm a huge stan of the Republican not winning the presidency next year, whoever that Republican may be. Progressive groups and Democratic lawmakers have urged Mr. Biden to boast more about his economic record, and Mr. Biden's aides have grown confident that conditions in the economy are favorable for voters to start giving the president the credit they see he is due for the moment, Biden and his aides are trying to focus on what the administration has done, hoping to counter polls that show three-fourths of those surveyed believe the country under Biden's leadership is on the wrong track. Only about a third say they approve his handling of the economy. Um, and we see this in action. Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, referred to Mr. Biden's remarks in Chicago as part of a bankrupting America tour. Americans are worse off under Biden. She said savings, real wages, and economic confidence are all down while prices continue to skyrocket and hardworking Americans pay the price for failed Bidenomics. Which is like, how much of this is coronavirus? How much of coronavirus and our horrible response to it is due to Trump? You know, like there's a lot of other things happening, but it's very, very easy for Republicans to then just paint this as a blanket like Biden did something wrong. Biden's doing something wrong and that's why you're suffering. Um, yeah, I don't want to read the rest of this, but you get the you get the point, you know, like I'm glad that he's out there trying to say the good things he's doing. Is it like a manipulation tactic? A little bit. Yeah. But it's also, like, good for the Democrats for him to be doing that.
anyway, moving on. What do we got next? Oh, this was very, this was a very interesting article on a scientific theory I'd never heard of because I don't know science um, from the New York Times. The terror of threes in the heavens and on Earth. Physicists have long explored how phenomena in groups of three can sow chaos. A new three-body problem, they warn, could lead to not only global races for new armaments, but also thermonuclear war. <laughs> so that's great. Um, today it's called the three-body problem. Famous in science and science fiction for orbital perturbations and uh, chaotic phenomena, it's recently become a concern of atomic experts and military planners. As Beijing rapidly expands its nuclear arsenal, they warn that the world of atomic superpowers is about to escalate to three from two. The outcome, they add, compared to compared with the Moscow-Washington standoff, now 70 years old, could represent a dangerous new kind of unthinkable. The looming era could encourage states to resort to nuclear weapons in a crisis. Um, and he cited, this guy cited the natural instabilities observed by physicists and astronomers as a portent. Uh, France A. Cordoba, an astrophysicist and past director of the National Science Foundation, said the study of three-body phenomena in the natural sciences could nonetheless help reveal the military risks. Things are changing very rapidly, she said. Anything that helps in understanding that is great. Security-minded hawks want to expand the American arsenal in response to China's nuclear rise and the threat of Beijing's closing ranks with Moscow. Dubs see a window for the three-body downsizing. They want to break the problem into smaller and more manageable parts. For instance, they argue that Washington should deal with the two superpowers independently and seek diplomatic bonds that reinforce two-body stability. But in many aspects of nature, threes have an almost magical power to sow chaos, to become more than the sum of their parts. Scientists call them non-linearities. In short, the interval from two to three can produce a counterintuitive jump in complexity, as Newton found. Threes are inherently problematic. Things get tricky. Atoms illustrate the complexity. Hydrogen, the simplest, has two main parts, a nucleus and a single circulating electron. But helium, the next larger atom, has two electrons. The interplay of those two particles with the element's nucleus throws them into a complicated state beyond the comprehension of science. There is no exact solution. You can't find out what's happening to their behavior, their location, or anything else. It doesn't scale. Things get chaotic. If two of the swirling bodies, okay, surprisingly, jump and disorganization also shows up in the world's oceans and atmosphere and whirlpools and maelstroms, tornadoes and hurricanes. Just realized I've never, I've read this word, but I've never said it out loud. Sorry if that was wrong. If two of the swirling bodies get close, they move ahead in straight lines or circle each other. With three, things immediately get more complicated. They can collapse into each other. It gets very disordered and unpredictable. There's a huge difference. Notably, the jump also shows up in human life as groups of three cause social complexities to soar markedly in young families. Two siblings have one relationship, but a third child results in seven kinds of ties among the siblings. Three one-on-one -on -one relationships, three one-on-two relationships, and one group relationship. Parents, by definition, are, are outnumbered and bedlam can ensue. Are any of you one of three children? I would love to hear more. In the cosmos, stars also come in chaotic threesomes. The celebrated science fiction novel, The Three-Body Problem, features three stars that whirl around one another in unruly orbits. As a result, the planet Trisolaris suffers cycles of blistering heat and icy cold that can reverse in minutes, producing an alien civilization obsessed with survival. That book sounds pretty good. Clusters of three stars, however, turn out to be relatively rare in the universe because stragglers in wide orbits often get ejected or absorbed by passing star system. The Cold War, for all of its terrors and crises, avoided nuclear war in part because its mature structure echoed the binary stability that astronomers see in the heavens and that young families see in the relatively simple play of two children. Um, 
So the looming departure is Beijing's plan to produce 1,500 nuclear warheads by 2035. If achieved, the rise would represent a five-fold increase from the minimum deterrent that Beijing possessed for more than a half century and would make a nuclear peer of Moscow and Washington. Um... There are a number of ways that it might be avoided, that the unthinkable might be avoided, though, for instance. Oops. Um, Moscow could fade into economic and strategic insignificance, leaving a strong Beijing and Washington to navigate their way to a new bipolar equilibrium. The armed revolt over the weekend in Russia drives home not only Moscow's weakness, but the threat of new instability in an economic, in an atomic superpower. Um, if you didn't know, one of Putin's generals who had an army uh, marched on or was going to march on Moscow and it didn't happen, but it showed that there's some weakness. There's a lot more nuance to that story, uh, but I cannot provide it to you at this moment. So anyway, this isn't really news. I just thought it was interesting. I'd never heard of this phenomenon, but it makes a lot of sense or like makes a lot of sense that it doesn't make any sense to scientists. And um, I have heard, you know, that people are kind of freaked out about China and what might happen um, with Taiwan and like world wars and stuff. And so it's a little spooky out there. It's a little spooky out there right now. Let's see. Chaotic threesomes. I didn't say that. The New York Times said that. Let's see. Anyway. I just thought that was interesting. And now I really want to read that, that book. All right. Moving on. Oh, this was also very interesting. Um, so the New York Times tested these new companies that claim they can detect which images are real and which are created by AI. To assess the effectiveness of current AI detection technology, the New York Times tested five new services using more than 100 synthetic images and real photos. The results show that the services are advancing rapidly, but at times fall short. So this is an AI-generated image depicting Elon Musk kissing a very human-like robot. To me, this looks AI-generated. And I, and I really notice it in, like, the hair. You probably can't see this quite as much in quite as much detail over the live stream. Um, but the hair is very soft. Like, you can't... It doesn't show the individual strands the way that... It should. Also, I need to scroll past Elon Musk kissing anyone because ick. So two of those five thought it was real. Scrolling down, here's some more. This was AI generated. One of it thought one of them thought it was real. Um, where are the arrows? There we go. This was AI generated. I thought this was spooky because only one was able to tell that this was generated by AI. And that's spooky. That's spooky. This was a real image. One thought it was AI. This was generated by AI. One thought it was real. 
This was generated by AI. Three thought that it was real. This was generated by AI. One thought it was real. Which, like, this one looks pretty AI generated, frankly. This was a real image. One thought it was generated by AI. Um, one person said, in general, I don't think that they're great, and I'm not optimistic that they will be. In the short term, it's possible that they will be able to perform with some accuracy, but in the long run, anything special a human does with images, AI will be able to recreate as well, and it will be very difficult to distinguish the difference. Every time somebody builds a better generator, people build better discriminators, and then people use the better discriminator to build a better generator. The generators are designed to be able to fool a detector. And then this one was funny. This image was generated by AI. Every single one of them thought that it was real. <laughs> oh, we're screwed. Oh boy, we're screwed. Because the thing is, is these, these detectors don't use context. So they're not looking at it and saying, oh, this, this wouldn't be possible because this humanoid tree-like giant Bigfoot man that's not real. Like this, this is very implausible. It, it's more likely it was generated by AI. They're not looking at that context. They're looking at like the details, the pixelation, the softness or hardness, the noise. Um, they're not looking at the overall context of it. So um, it could have some interesting implications for art. This is a real image by Jackson Pollock and one thought that it was AI. This is an AI generated thing and one thought that it was real. Um, this is an example of where one thought that this image was real, but um, when you add grain, like this noise to it, they became a lot less better at detecting whether it was generated by AI. And it's only going to get worse from here, my friends. It's only going to get worse from here. Okay. It's bad. It's bad. Um, other things that are bad, uh, we'll put this in, eat the rich. Debris and presumed human remains from the lost Titan are recovered. Yikes. Yikes. There's an arrow here. Where's the arrow for this? I don't know where the arrow is. Anyway. Debris and presumed human remains from the Titan submersible have been recovered and returned to land. Nearly a week after an international search and rescue operation ended and the vessel's five passengers were presumed dead, the debris will be taken to a U.S. port where the Marine Board of Investigation will do further analysis and testing. United States medical professionals will conduct a formal analysis of the presumed human remains that have been carefully cut recovered within the wreckage at the site of the incident. Um, and why it matters, the debris could lead to clues... Recovered debris could contain vital information about what exactly happened to the Titan. Um, it could show a point of failure of the hull, how pieces of carbon fiber and titanium, the submersible's materials were connected, if any electronic data was recovered. It's not going to be as simple as examining a black box. Um, it's highly unlikely that the submersible had a central data recorder for a disaster because the submersible was basically a just a tin can. But he said data is recorded in different places, hard drives, sonar footage, and even possibly cameras that could help investigators begin to paint a story of what had happened. Um, it could take anywhere from 18 to 24 months for this investigation to unfold. And I saw a really interesting TikTok 
yesterday by a writer. She's so, she's great, and I can't remember her name. So if this sounds familiar and you know who I'm talking about, please let me know. Um, but she was talking about how she writes a lot about how male overconfidence leads to the um, death or endangerment of women and children because like, and she get used the example of she was a raft guide, like a whitewater raft guide. And her first day of work, she had to pull a woman's body out of the water and try to resuscitate her because a male guide was overconfident and risky. And that woman died. And that happens like men who gamble and use all the family funds, men who get too drunk and, you know, are abusive. Like the, the riskiness and the risky behavior of men often leads to the death of women and children. And she used an, this was an interesting example where like the man, the, the guy who was, who was there with his 19 year old son on board. And like, there was reports that like this 19 year old son really didn't want to go. He was really scared, but he really wanted to make his dad happy. And so he went down there with him and just the, the hubris of man being deadly for, for women and children. So hate that. Hate that. You don't see women doing this shit. You don't, there are no women in that thing for a reason. You'd look at that one second and be like, hell no. Hell no. Yeah, billionaires are disconnected from humanity and they're bored and need excitement. It's near self-harm tendencies. I think about that. I thought about that when I watched the, like, there's a documentary on Netflix, or at least it was on Netflix, called Free Solo. It was about, like, this guy that was, like, obsessed with climbing the tallest peaks possible with no safety equipment. He wasn't a billionaire and there was like one woman featured in that thing. But I did have the thought where I was like, you know what? Walking down the street at night is scary enough. Like I get enough of a little thrill seeking hit from that. What must it be like to walk through life so bored and unafraid that you're like, I need to scale a fucking cliff, you know, <laughs> can't relate, cannot relate. I feel like anyone with a generalized anxiety disorder could also relate to that. Cannot relate. Yeah, I feel like we learn risk assessment at a young age and to be risk averse at a young age, generally as women. All right, and then the last, the last story, um, just I just it's interesting to watch this unfold um, over in France. A teenager was killed by police during a roadside stop. Um, and so there have been that was Tuesday, I believe, and there have been protests overnight Wednesday and last night. And um, let's see, I saw clashes have broken out at a march, um, but it was interesting to me. Oh, my God, my cat is attacking my feet. <clears throat> Um, an expert says that young people of color in France live with racism and the threat of police brutality, describing the anger in minority communities that underpinned this week's protests. Many young people in the suburbs, in the poorest neighborhoods, those whose parents in Paris are immigrants from Africa, the Caribbean, and also Asia, know they are the first target of police brutality. 
Um, that's the boy's mom. And then I just thought it was interesting. Uh, we don't need to look at that. There is one. Oh, here. Um, a French government official has denied institutional responsibility in the shooting death of the 17-year-old, placing the blame wholly on the officer involved. It's not the Republic that was in custody. It's not the Republic that killed this young man, nor is it the police of the Republic who is responsible for this killing. It's one man who must be judged if the judge's system deems it necessary. Um, but anger is rising over the death of this boy. And the thing is, is like, people don't, people... If this were a case where it's like, ooh, one bad apple, it's just a, it's just an, an anomaly, this one bad apple. Um, if that really were the case, people would not be in the streets. People would not be, oh, show me an ad. People would not be in the streets protesting. You know, it's indicative that people know there's a larger problem. Yeah, exactly. Because why examine the system when there's a fall guy? the police in France are really scary. I've never been to France, so I, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I just think it's interesting to see that it's, I mean, I assumed this, but to see that it's not just in the United States where this is a problem and to watch it play out. I'm actually in the, the process. I have planned a video on why police in the U.S. are so brutal, why they're, why they're so uh, corrupt. And I know it's not a solely U.S. problem, but it seems to be a uniquely U.S. issue that it happens so frequently. And so I really want to get to the bottom of why that is. And I decided to do that before I even really knew about this. So I'm, I'm glad to be examining that simultaneously because it's it's not just a U.S. problem, but there is there is a history in the U.S. that explains some of it. And I'm sure that there's something like that in France. I just am not... Um, educated enough about France politics and France history. Uh, and that's that. That's all I had. I'm going to, let me put it to consumption corner. I don't even know. I really haven't been consuming much. I've been busy, been busy getting engaged. Follow me on Instagram if you want life updates like that. Cause that's where I post shit like that. Um, Let's see. What do I have? Oh, wildfire smoke was another thing I wanted to talk about. We got some here in Minnesota. It's really not as bad as it was like last week or like it was in New York. Um, but I did. I went for a walk this morning and I definitely felt a little, little irritation in my throat and nose. So be safe out there. Be smart. Um, let's see. What do I have brewing? I have brewing... Uh, oh, my newest video came out yesterday. It's all about why conservatives are so likely to fall for fake news. That was a really interesting one to make. So if you haven't seen it yet, go watch that. Next week's video is going to be about Watergate and how Trump is so much like Nixon and how Tr and how Watergate paved the way for the the criminality of of Trump today. Um, that one was fun to make because I really didn't know the history and like the details of Watergate. So That'll be fun. That comes out next week. And then I also have brewing a brand new podcast. Yes, I'm dropping a new podcast. Um, it is in connection with my company, Delusion Media, my course, Catalyst Academy, over on the Delusion Media YouTube channel. If you're not familiar, um, I have posted a few videos 
talking about YouTube, how to be a YouTuber, different things like that. And then I kind of put it on pause as I was developing this new course that I just launched. But now that the course is out in the world, I want to make content again. And so I'm making this podcast and I will also be dropping a separate just kind of video series. The podcast is all about being a YouTuber. I'll do solo shows, but I'm also planning on bringing on my YouTuber friends, other YouTubers, and just like getting the dirt on like, what's your process like? What's it like for you to be a YouTuber? And just get all the like fun nitty gritty details. So I'm excited about that just from like a selfish perspective. I think it's going to be really fun, especially because like I'm excited to meet some of my favorite YouTubers if I can get them on the show. Um, but then I'm also releasing just a series on the channel, on the Delusion Media channel, where I look at and react to the old videos of, you know, some of the biggest YouTubers. So like the first episode is Mr. Beast. So I'm going to look back at Mr. Beast's oldest videos and what his videos look like now and use that as a means of figuring out like what have they learned over their YouTube trajectory about making better videos and growing on YouTube and like how can we recreate that. So Mr. Beast is first next week, then I'm doing Bailey Sarian, and then I'm taking requests for other things. So subscribe to the Delusion Media YouTube channel if you haven't already. Um, if you're interested in, in doing the YouTube thing, I have a new free masterclass that I'm offering. It's like my three-step process for YouTube success for free. So you can register for that. Um, I'm not sure if it's in the description. So I can just, let me just find a link and throw it in the chat really quick. Just because I have you here and why not? Let's see. My masterclass is a three-part formula for YouTube success. Okay, it's in the chat. That's all I got for you. So keep an eye out. Super excited. Super fun stuff coming. Um, kind of revving up my organization systems and and all all things firing on all cylinders. Um, and I did I did hire a research assistant for my law YouTube videos, which has been great. Her name is Tori. She's awesome. I am now sharing her research documents over on my Patreon for Patreon supporters, so they can see the research and the sources. And so she's Tori's been providing a ton of help for me there and way more organized with her research. So I'm actually willing to share those documents because my research in the past is, it's a hot mess. So that's all I got. I hope you have a great day. I hope you have a great 4th of July weekend. Um, I will be back on Thursday next week after the weekend. So please enjoy and I'll see you guys then. Thanks for listening to Live with Lija. Catch me live over on YouTube every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. Central Time or listen in podcast form every Thursday afternoon. See you next time, you dirty little rascal.